chapter 10. And um, a story that not many of you will have heard before, the Good Samaritan. You didn't laugh, you meant to laugh, okay, that's fine. Yeah, very, very well known, uh, isn't it? And you'll find that starting at verse 25. And it reads, in my Bible anyway, you might have some slightly different words, but that's okay. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, this morning, Dr Luke uh, continues with his orderly account of the most excellent Theophilus so that he might know the certainty of things uh, that he has been taught and hopefully we'll get some of the same benefit too this morning as we look at uh, God's word. Just want to uh, quickly pray again uh, just to settle. So let's just uh, uh, pray. Father, uh, would you now uh, teach each of us individually uh, what you want us to hear this morning that we might apply those things to our life. Lord God, would you open our ears up that we might hear you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we look at this passage, I want to take a, a helicopter ride across Luke. This one's paid for, by the way, so that's okay. Uh, just to re- shouldn't have said that, should I? Uh, just to remind us of the events that have been happening uh, in Luke up to this point. So if you're not familiar with the book of Luke or you're not familiar with the Bible, I'm just going to give you a real quick about four-minute uh, little whip through Luke to get a bit of an understanding and we will arrive uh, at this story. So in chapter 1 we had the birth of John the Baptist, then chapter 2 we had the birth of Jesus and the whole uh, Christmas story. Uh, Then we have Jesus presented at the temple at eight days old and when he goes in to be presented they present him and there's a guy there called Simeon and Simeon has been promised by God that he won't die until he sees the Messiah. And so we have this beautiful picture of Simeon there and he says, you now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation because he gets to hold this child Jesus. Then Jesus as a 12 year old, his parents can't find him they're coming back from the Passover so they head back to Jerusalem and here's Jesus as a 12 year old and what's he doing he's listening to the teachers and he's asking questions of the teachers even then in chapter 3 Jesus grows to maturity he's baptized by John out in the desert in Judea and uh, while he's praying the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice comes from heaven saying you are my son I love you and with you I'm well pleased 
We see a genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, which is interesting. And after being baptised, we then see Jesus head out into the desert uh, to be tempted by the devil very unsuccessfully for 40 days. And then returning from the desert, Jesus begins his ministry. And he goes into his hometown of Nazareth, but he is very much rejected there in Nazareth. But uh, one of my favourite and most poignant moments in the whole book of Luke comes when he's in the synagogue there and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And he takes the scroll scroll of Isaiah and he looks through and he finds his spot and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll and said to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He was announcing who he was. That is an amazing uh, thing. But he is rejected in his uh, hometown of Nazareth. In fact, he says a few things in the synagogue they don't like. And they even take him up to the top of a hill and try and throw him off. But he turns around and walks back straight back through them. So he heads out to the region of Galilee where he starts his ministry and he works many miracles. He cures the sick, he drives out evil spirits and he speaks to the people in stories and in parables, teaching them along the way. We also see this beginning of the opposition of the Pharisees too, who don't like what they're seeing because Jesus doesn't adhere to their rules and traditions and he's becoming more popular than them and they don't like that at all. Chapter 6, he chooses his 12 disciples and we see like a shortened version of the Sermon on the Mount uh, where he's telling those around him to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you, which is pretty poignant for uh, what we're looking at today. Uh, Chapter 7, we see the faith of a Roman centurion and a widow's son raised from the dead. We also see at a Pharisee's house where Jesus is invited to a meal, we see this sinful woman come in and she starts pouring perfume on Jesus' feet and kissing his feet. And then right in front of the Pharisees, Jesus forgives her for her sins, which raises a few eyebrows in the Pharisee department. Chapter 8 and 9, we see the parable of the sower and Jesus calming a storm and that miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And then the beautiful confession of Christ by Peter when Jesus said to the guys, so who are people saying I am? And they say, well, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And he says to Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. This is a great confession of his. And straight after that, uh, there is also the first of three times in Luke where Jesus starts telling them that he's going to die. He starts to indicate to them what's going to happen. Then we see Peter and James and John witness uh, the transfiguration. We see this really foolish argument between the disciples as to who is the greatest. And then we arrive at a very, very important verse. I want you to turn to this one. It's in chapter 9 and it's verse 51. This is a key verse. Chapter 9 and verse 51. And it reads this, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is a game changer. Things have changed from this point. He's been in Galilee doing his mission, but now he's turned towards Jerusalem where he will be crucified to complete the purpose that he came here for. for. And the reality is that from here on in in Luke, we should really read everything in light of the fact that Christ is now heading towards uh, the cross as well. So let's keep that in mind. Interestingly enough, straight after that in 52, he sends out some of his people into uh, a Samaritan village and uh, the Samaritan that's to prepare the way for him to go there. And when they get there and they find out that Jesus is going to Jerusalem, He is not welcome at all. They're not welcome at all. 
And we'll find out a little bit about uh, the reason for that. Then, a little bit further down the track, Jesus sends out 72. In some scripts it says 70, doesn't matter. They went out in pairs and Jesus tells them what sort of houses to go to, what to do. Uh, He says, you know, uh, when you get there, heal the sick who are there and tell them that the kingdom of God is near you. And when they get back, they are so excited, so excited that in verse uh, 17 of chapter 10, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. They're that excited about that. And I love Jesus' reply down in verse 20 when he says, Do not rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Their salvation, far more important than any signs that could come. Then a little bit further, he turns to his disciples and says privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but didn't see it, and hear to hear, but did not hear it. In other words, he is the Christ. Here he is. He has announced himself, just like Simeon did back in the temple, realising who Jesus uh, was. And so we arrive at Luke 25. Now, the Good Samaritan is uh, probably the most well-known uh, parable of all of them. It's unique to the Gospel of Luke, so having a look at it. And even the world knows about the Good Samaritan. We hear on news reports, don't we? We hear about some Good Samaritan that stopped somewhere. They didn't know the person and they, they did something really, really good for them. So the world terms them as a Good Samaritan without really getting the story. But it's not a bad expression. I'm quite happy for the world to use anything that's out of the Bible, particularly if it brings up some discussion as to what that's all about. But although it's a well-known story, the parable has been given many, many interpretations. It's interesting, I was reading a number of them in the last few weeks. And if I got you guys to uh, read the parable and then to interpret it and to write it out what you thought it was about, we'd have all sorts of stuff uh, coming to us. Some would say, well, it's about a good guy and two lousy guys, so be like the good guy, not the two lousy guys. That would be an easy way uh, to interpret it. Some interpret the story by looking at various things allegorically that could mean things. For example, uh, some would say that the in the story that the inn represents the church or uh, the story's got something to do with church membership uh, or even the coins might have something to do with baptism as well. Some people will uh, preach on the fact that Jesus is that good Samaritan who goes to the man who is left alone to die, who is like a sinner, and Jesus restores him, which is fine. It's fine to, to look at things uh, that way. And certainly Jesus has those characteristics and does uh, those sorts of things. So this parable's been interpreted a number of different ways and quite often asks us to use our imaginations or to read into things a little bit as well. And that can sometimes cause a little bit of a problem. Uh, so with that in mind, today... What I want to do is simply leave this parable in its context and in the framework of where it sits in the book of Luke here uh, to find out a bit about the story, why Jesus told the story and how he dealt with the different situations that came from it, particularly uh, the guy who was asking the questions. Keeping in mind, of course, that Jesus now has resolutely turned and is starting to head uh, towards Jerusalem. Quite often, I don't know if you've been in the situations before, but I certainly have a number of times where you finish up in a question and answer situation. Uh, as a teacher, that happened uh, in my business where I'm uh, dealing uh, with managers and consultants, uh, where I work three days a week. As a pastor, it often happens that there are a number of questions when you come into this question and answer thing. And if you've watched Q&A, it's an absolute uh, classic example uh, of that. And when you're doing these things, you become you start to actually distinguish between a good question where somebody really wants to learn or understand something 
And then at the other end of the scale, the opposite end of the scale, a question from somebody who's a little bit hostile or they've got a completely different ulterior motive to what's going on. You've been in that situation before? I certainly have myself. And if you're the type of person who gets into question and answer sessions either individually or with groups of non-Christians, well, that can be interesting too. And again, we're, you know, are they genuinely asking a question to hear and to glean some truth from what you're saying or are they there just to be a sceptic and a critic and to try and dump a heap of rubbish on you as well and sort of make fun of the whole thing stirring the pot up? I think sometimes we actually give these people... Uh, too much time, to be perfectly honest. We need to be pretty discerning of that. You know, things like, so how did polar bears get on the ark? You know, and like the chestnut, so did Adam have a belly button? And like other real important questions about salvation and our eternity, right? This is what people are asking. Did they do these things? There's nothing wrong with discussion up to a point, but at some stage we need to say, no, enough is enough. Classic example, I read this, fantastic. Martin Luther, you will have heard of, a great theologian. He was in one of these situations and he had this guy who was throwing stuff at him, these sorts of questions. He didn't really have a heart to listen. He was just throwing things up to be a sceptic. And his last question went like this. So when God finished creating the universe, what did he do then? Martin Luther looked at him and said, he created hell for people like you that ask dumb questions. (laughs) Now, I'm not suggesting that we go down that path. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. But there is a big difference, isn't there, between the genuine seeker and the person who is hostile and has ulterior motives. So let's have a look at what Luke tells us about this guy that is asking the questions and what his motivations are. Let's turn to uh, verse 35, uh, 25 sorry, and have a look. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Expert in the law. Some of you might be reading the word lawyer in there, and that's probably how I'll refer to him. So this is a lawyer, but this is not a guy with one of those white curly wigs who spends all day in a courtroom dealing with criminals. This is an expert in the law, a guy who uh, is an expert in the first five books of the Old Testament, which are called the Pentateuch, okay? Uh, Sometimes referred to as the Torah. You might hear that expression too. And these five uh, books that carry these laws, they're instructions given by God through Moses to the people of Israel. Very, very important stuff. And this man was a religious lawyer and he would have been really, really proud because he would have known all 600 plus rules and regulations and commands there of the Torah. But you see, there's a bit of a problem because the religious leaders of the time, what they would do is they would add some of their own traditions and they would twist things around a little bit. And what they did was they turned obedience into God for people like the biggest obstacle course you've ever come across in your life. They would add all these prickly do's and these prickly don'ts So the people, the normal person was just left in this state of permanent guilt trip all the time. It was all too hard, too many things to remember, too many things to do. That's actually how the law is designed by God in the first place too, to show that it's just not possible. But this totally contradicted the way that Jesus was teaching, totally. And so confrontation between these guys, the lawyers and the experts of the law, etc., it was inevitable, it was going to happen. These lawyers along with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all the other religious uh, leadership, they were constantly out there trying to discredit him. And they wanted to, uh, to trap Jesus into saying something stupid or, or something criminal so that they could turn him over to the authorities. That's what it was all about. 
They followed him everywhere. Have a look at this, Luke 5, 17, it reads, One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. There's guys popping out behind bushes and around corners and that too. They were coming from everywhere to see what was going on. But check out their motivation. Luke 20, 20 says, Keeping close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They didn't want to hear the truth. They just didn't like what he was teaching against their laws. It was like everywhere Jesus went, he had the Torah police with him, having a look to see what was going on, to keep a check on him. And was Jesus surprised at this? No, not at all. In chapter 9, verse 22, this is what he told his disciples. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. There is no surprise here for Jesus at all. So this guy, he's an expert in the law and his goal is to catch Jesus out rather than to listen to him with an open ear prepared to hear the truth. And we see that very, very clearly. Have a look at verse 25 again. Luke tells us that he stood up to do what? Tell me the word. What's the word he's doing? He is testing. Yeah, he's standing up to test Jesus. And look at verse 29. What else is he doing? A little bit down the track. He tells us that he wants to justify himself. So we've got this guy who wants to test Jesus and justify himself. Doesn't sound like he really wants to take in the good news, does it? Of course, everything looked very, very respectable when it gets started. Very respectable indeed. Uh, Have a look at the rest of verse 25. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He stands up because they would normally, when there's a rabbi, they would sit down and then they had a question, they would stand up and they would ask this question. So he stands up very respectful and he asks this question and it's a profound question this is not a question that is trivial what must I do to inherit eternal life it's the most important question that anybody can ask I rather suspect that there's a bunch of atheists that go to bed at night and still think about that stuff they just don't do it in public and why do they do that because you know God in his benevolence he makes us that way so that we might seek after him just that some people close their hearts. They have hardened hearts towards God. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question, but ulterior motive. Not genuine seeking going on here. So how does Jesus respond to this question? We've got a lot to learn from how Jesus responds to things. How shall I inherit eternal life? Does he say, well... Believe in me because I'm the Messiah, God's only son who can forgive you from your sins. Ah, nope, not going to do that. He uses the same method that he uses time and time again. That he responds to a question with a... And so what is this question? Verse 26, how shall I inherit eternal life? And Jesus quite simply says, or what's written in the law? How do you read it? Hasn't answered him, just asked a question. And the Pharisee very confidently says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Well, that's easy for him. He's been reciting this maybe twice a day ever since he was a little kid. Uh, straight out of Deuteronomy 6.4 and then Leviticus 19.18, which he, he knew so, so well. 
In fact, if he was coming from the temple, apparently he would have had these words strapped around his wrist and around his forehead as well. That's how well he knew those words straight out of the law. So now he's waiting for a response. So you're going to answer this one, Jesus. This is going to be interesting. Certainly was. But what Jesus says next stops him absolutely in his tracks. Hmm. Jesus said to him, yeah, you've answered correctly. That's not the important part. Here's the important part. Do this and you will live. You see what Jesus is saying here? You've answered correctly. Yeah, love the Lord your God. Do this and you will live. Anybody who meets such a standard lives. All you have to do is to be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as much as you love yourself all the time. Meet that standard, you won't even need grace. All you'll have to do is continue to be perfect. Go ahead, do that, you're in, you'll live. Now at this point, gee, I wish I'd been there. At this point, the lawyer, this expert in the law, if he'd been honest with himself, he would have said, "Uh, look, I, I can't love God like that. I can't love God perfectly all the time. I can't even love the people I like all the time. I can't love the person around me the same way I love myself. I I can't do that. I haven't done that. I'm not capable of that. And in the future, I'm not going to be able to do that as well. I can't be perfect as my father is perfect in heaven. I can't be holy like God is holy. Therefore, I'm sinful and I'm heading for punishment. Not only that, I won't be in heaven unless I get mercy and forgiveness. But he doesn't say that. Instead of saying this, he actually drowns his conscience, not listening, not listening, not listening, and remembers that he's there to test Jesus and not the other way. But he couldn't leave himself in this predicament, could he? He's drowning himself out with all this self-righteous pride in brackets, stupidity. He's drowned it all out. So he's in this predicament, but now he's really uneasy about the situation and uneasy about his whole thought process, what's going on here. So we come to the lawyer's second question. Maybe this time he'll ask a question that will be a seeking question. Sadly not. Verse 29, have a look at that. Luke writes, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbour? A couple of quick things here. Usually when somebody justifies themselves, they want to cover up or explain some sort of sin or something they've done wrong or they feel guilty about something or embarrassed about something rather. You hear, you hear the expression, don't you, when somebody goes, oh, he's just trying to justify himself. It's always said in a negative vein. You don't hear somebody say, well, he justified himself really well. We don't hear that. It's always in a negative vein, isn't it? Justifi- justification in God's word is that act which God justifies us. That is, God declares us right with him because of our faith in Jesus and the forgiveness that we've received from him because of our faith in him. That's how we're justified. And the opposite of that is that we justify ourselves. And it doesn't take much imagination to be aware how much sin is bound up in self-justification. So, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? And Jesus sits down for a couple of hours and explains to him who his neighbour is. No, he doesn't do that, does he? 
He doesn't even ask a question immediately this time. He resorts to something else that he's very, very good at too, and that's telling a story. Very familiar approach. And he tells a story. And an interesting point before we actually get to the story that you have to understand, and I didn't get this till just a few days ago. Been around for a long time. I never, never knew this. Some of you are going to look at me and go, really? I've known that for years. That's okay. I learned. Leviticus 19.18, which is the law that says, love your neighbour as yourself. Well, these experts of the law and all these Pharisees, they, they twist things around a little bit. They add things to it. And they've certainly done it here. Because the way that they've interpreted it, because of a couple of words that come just before that love your neighbour as yourself, they've turned it into, so it reads like this, love your Jewish neighbours as yourself. That's how it's actually interpreted. That's how he thought, love your neighbours as yourself. Love your Jewish neighbours as yourself. So when we read this story, we need to keep that in mind too and it puts a whole new thought process uh, on this story I found for myself. Well, let's hear the story uh, again. So... There he is, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going along down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine and then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, look after him said and when I return I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is reading about that too about 30 k's or so very very steep drops down a long way and it's an area that the lawyer would have known very very well indeed because the priests and the Levites would go backwards and forwards from those two places to go to the temple but it was also a really really dangerous area too In fact, it became known as the way of blood. There were lots of murders there, lots of robberies going in that area too. So it's very familiar when Jesus told this story. The man, we don't know what nationality is. Got no idea what it is. And that's obviously on purpose because it doesn't matter. He gets beaten up by these robbers within an inch of his life and then he gets left for dead. And then verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road. Yes, this is good news. A priest, a servant of God, the one who offers sacrifices for the people in the temple, who lifts the people up before God, the best man, sort of, you know, godly man, righteous man. And get this too. A priest is going to know the Old Testament law. He's going to know that Leviticus 19.34 says that if you see a stranger in need, you do whatever it takes to meet his need. How fortunate is this guy lying on the side of the road that a priest is coming past? Verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Do you know what the words actually mean? It actually means, when you decipher the words, that he went the opposite direction. It's like, whoop, whoop, gone the other way. The lawyer is not enjoying this story at this case. He's not having a good time with this story. So too a Levite, verse 32, so too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side of the road. Now, the Levites are like the assistants in the temple. They're the lower uh, rank of that. And they certainly would have known the law. And again, they leave this guy for dead. Latest bulletin, lawyer's still not enjoying story. Maybe it'll get better. No. Now comes the big twist. Here comes the big twist. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he travelled came where the man was and when he saw him and took pity on him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, look after him and so on. A Samaritan? Are you kidding me? Thinks the lawyer as his blood runs cold. Even the thought of the fact that there's a good Samaritan, those two words good and Samaritan, are as annoying to him as two words that I see on ads on TV and that is gamble responsibly. I don't get that at all. Good Samaritan doesn't make any sense to this guy. A good Samaritan? You know what? The, the Samaritans were a mix of Jews and uh, Gentiles and they were hated by the Jews. There's a real long history here. They'd intermarried with each other and often uh, the Jews that married these people would um, take on these false and pagan gods as well. And the, the Jews would call them half-breeds. And even, you know, if the Jews went on a long trip, you know what they do? They actually go round Samaria so they didn't even have to come into contact with the Samaritans who they considered to be, um, you know, people who were unclean as well. So that's exactly why Jesus used this Samaritan. Because if the priest or the Levite had looked after the guy, the lawyer would have gone, yeah, go temple guys, okay? And he wouldn't have even challenged his thinking at all. Not for a second would it have challenged it. So Jesus used the most hated of all races to make this point. He uses a Samaritan to drive the point as to how in God's eyes we are to treat people, all people. You know what, even Christians get that messed up sometimes. We've got this funny thing that we're against people. We have to love people, all people, with kindness and with love. There's a Bible verse that says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, isn't it? Jesus, by telling this story uh, to the expert of the law, is saying to him, yes, you know the law very well, but are you living it? Jesus wasn't going to justify this man's life when he only loved those people who were like himself, his neighbours, his Jewish neighbours. There's no room here uh, for prejudice at all. The reality is that with uh, all of us, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. And God had every right because of his holiness to leave us on the side of the road. And we couldn't have said that's not fair. No, because we are the ones who have sinned. He could have left us there, but he didn't do that. He showed us mercy and he showed us grace for those who came to him to believe in his son without prejudice. So after this story is complete, Jesus then asks this wonderful, wonderful question, which by now the guy's only going to be able to have one answer to anyway. Did you notice that he actually doesn't answer the original question? Because the original question, the lawyer's question was, who is my neighbour? And he asked that because he wanted to justify himself. Instead, Jesus asks in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell in the hands of Robert? If it had been the priest, he would have happily said, the priest. If it had been the Levite, he would have gone, the Levite. But it was a Samaritan. And he couldn't even say the word could not bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So the expert of the law replied, verse 37, the one who showed mercy on him. And then this wonderful piece of work by Jesus, a simple thing to say after he said that, agreeing with everything that the lawyer has said so far. I don't know if you've picked that up. He's agreeing with everything that he said. He says, hmm, 
go and do likewise. All Jesus is doing here is confirming what the lawyer has been telling him. There has not been an argument here. Does the lawyer do these things? Probably not. But I can tell you there would have been one very confused lawyer heading home that night and probably when he went to the temple to tell other people what had happened, there would have been a bunch of confused people and maybe rethinking this whole law thing. You see, he had this opportunity. Here's Jesus standing right before him who is able to offer him mercy, who is able to offer him grace, who is able to offer him forgiveness. If only he would admit and repent what he knew to be true, that he couldn't keep the law and that he actually needed to be saved from it. But as I said, we got to chapter 9, verse 51. And what we see now is that as Jesus resolutely begins his journey to Jerusalem towards the cross, the hearts of many people will get harder and harder and harder. I want to move to the cardiac ward for a second. How's your heart? So I find it interesting, um, our hearts... um, We need to consider time and time again. We need to consider them daily. We need to consider them weekly. At the moment in your life, I'm talking to Christians and non-Christians here, by the way, too. How is your heart? At this moment in your life, do you have a heart that is open to hear and to respond to the truth? A heart that's really humble, it's really searching. Is that your heart at the moment? I know there are many here with a heart. That is a wonderful thing. Or do you have a heart that is closed to God And when you're discussing things about Jesus or issues in the Bible, you're always looking for the reason why it may not be true rather than accepting what Jesus has done in faith. We know the Bible verse well, don't we? That it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. And yet we continue to argue and argue and argue the toss about that. Maybe you're constantly trying to justify yourself. Even some Christians are trying to justify themselves. Because they're not really listening to God. When it's actually God, when it all boils down, who does all the justifying, the only one who can make us right with him and praise him for that. Maybe you have hardened your hearts to Jesus because the alternative is that if this is true, then I have to submit myself over to God and give up my own rights. And I don't want to do that. But not understanding that when we do that, there is great peace, there is great joy, and there's great freedom in doing that. Freedom from sin, following the one true God who, get this, loves his children. Loves his children. What a wonderful thing. Do you have a heart that is saying, um, well, I'm just going to keep working and doing things and doing things and doing things, I'm going to get my reward. What do you say? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He was even asking them, what do I have to do? to inherit eternal life. Well, we learn from the lawyer that we cannot do our way into heaven. I think we understand here, we talk about this a lot, don't we, that works works will come as a result of our love for Christ rather than do good works and maybe Christ will love me or maybe I'll get to heaven that way. It's all backwards. Hey, how are you going with loving your neighbour as yourself? Yep, me too. We're not great at it, are we? 
even within the body of Christ, even if we said, you know, love thy neighbour who's a Christian as much as we love ourselves, if we twist it around as well, we're still not going real well with that. I'm not. But we're talking about with all people. How are we doing with that? You know what? God gets that we can't do that. He's not asking us to do the impossible. He is God. He is holy. We can't do those things ourselves. So we need to constantly be asking forgiveness. Lord, I'm so sorry that I, I did that. Will you forgive me? Will you help me to love these people that I'm struggling to love? And he will honour that. He loves his children coming to him and asking uh, these things. He's not going to beat you up and leave you on the side of the road uh, with this. We had a couple of minutes and what I want us to do, I'm going to close now. And I want us to take a quiet moment to consider this that God has given us. Whatever condition it's in at the moment, I don't know if you're hooked up with tubes, I don't know if it's bouncing for joy, and if it is, praise God for that. We have moments of that. But we live in small moments, don't we? We live in little moments. There's only a few big things that happen in our life. And so what I want us to do is to consider now, are we hardened to him or are we beginning to get that way? Because it goes down this slippery slope. Once we start to harden ourselves to God, it's very, very tough for it to get better unless we stop and we ask forgiveness for that. Also, while we're in his presence, let's consider our neighbours. Let's consider people that Jesus loves, people that are made in his own image and yet we don't treat them that way as well. It's most important that we keep that in mind. It's a simple, simple lesson. So I'm going to ask us now to be silent for about two, three minutes. And I want you to consider your heart. And if your heart is not in the right place, will you bring it back to Jesus? Will you confess that that's where my heart is, Lord, and I need to come back to you because you are the one who is going to make me righteous. You are the one who will justify me rather than me trying to justify myself. And be joyful when you've done that because he loves his children uh, coming to him. Let's be still and I'll pray in a few minutes' time. Our Lord, our God, we are so thankful to you that you are a mighty and holy God, maker of heaven and earth, maker of the universe. And you know us so well, Lord God. You know our innermost parts. You know how we live, how we breathe, what we think, Lord God. And yet you are still willing to take us as your child, as imperfect as we are. Lord God, we confess our sin to you. The times that we've hurt you, the times that we have hurt other people, Lord God, too, would you help us to be more like Jesus? Would you help us to be a neighbour to each other, Lord God, and to those in the world that they might know you because of our actions? Father, we, we are thankful for a time to be still and to bring these things before you. And Lord God, I would ask that within this congregation, Lord God, that you will speak to the hearts of your children, that they might respond to you, Lord God, particularly for those who have hardened their hearts, Lord God, or those that are falling away. Lord God, would you wake them up in your mercy and your grace, that they might come before you and they might again see what it is that you've done for them and come alive in Christ and be joyful, Lord God. 
For those that are hurting today, Lord God, would you help us to see who they are? Would you help us to be a neighbor, to love them, Lord God, like you loved us, to get alongside, Lord God, to pray with, to love? Father, forgive us when we look at people and we get this feeling because we don't like what that person's doing. Or would you rid us of these things, Lord God, because when it all boils down, we're going to be spending eternity together. And here we are as brothers and sisters in you and our behavior is poor. Father, would you teach us to love each other more? Lord God, I want to thank you for the things that you've taught me in these last couple of weeks, Father. And Lord God, for things that you've spoken to your children this morning individually, would you help them to keep those things in mind, Lord God, and to pray and to read your word and to dwell on these things that they too may become more like our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray now. Amen.